are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today's passage comes from Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows for his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? 
Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughters of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all the plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we praise you that there are tears on the pages of your holy word. We praise you that we get to find ourselves uh, journeying through exile with uh, the poet and Lady Zion here in the book of Lamentations. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would descend upon us, that we would know that you are near to us, that we do not have to fear, that these words are here to comfort us, and not to destroy us. These words in this passage are here to remind us that you indeed are our only hope. Oh, Father, hear my prayer. Be merciful to us. Be merciful to me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the elders here at Renaissance Church, and um, yeah, I just want to extend a warm welcome to you. If you have not done so already, I want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and fill the Connect card out. That's either on our website or on our um, online platform page. Um, and I, I just wonder, last night, when, when you guys laid your head down, what, 
what were you what were you hoping for today? What were you uh, putting your hope in for today? Uh, maybe it was not to start the day off with conflict resolution with your roommate because they kept you up all, all night. Uh, maybe it was hoping to to wake up to the reality that the the vaccine uh, that just came out is 100% effective and 100% safe, and they found out a way to make it 100% free and available to everybody this coming week. Maybe for you parents, it was hope that your kids would supernaturally obey. I mean, just for one day. Or maybe it runs even a little bit deeper. Maybe your hope was that you wouldn't be as much of a failure as you were the day before. Or maybe you just hoped one day you can truly, I mean really live by the grace of God. And that we would truly live to love others as Christ has loved us. You see, whatever motivates us to get out of the bed in the morning, that is where our hope is. So where is your hope? For Israel, it was rarely in their God. Rather, it was put in the political powers of their day and the principalities of darkness in the world. I mean, this is why they find themselves in slavery and captivity, because they sold their loyalty for the love of other nations. They traded in the loyalty and hope of the Lord for the slave drivers and the desires of all the nations. That's why they find themselves in exile in Babylon. And in Lamentations 3, we, the poet is now all alone. Lady Zion has gone quiet. We won't hear her sing another note throughout the rest of this hymn book. And so the poet does what he, anybody would do when they're sitting in a pool of their own tears. He begins to hope. He begins to hope again. He begins to assess his situation. He begins to grow in expectations. And then he fixes his eyes on an object. He fixes his eyes on his Creator, his God. See, what we'll find in this passage is that the poet never knew that God was all he had until God was his only hope. And we'll see his hope in four distinct ways. We'll see, first point, hope perishing. Second point, hope remembering. Third point, hope weeping. And fourth point, hope pleading. And all of this, my, my hope is that we would see that just as the poet never knew God was all he had until he was his only hope, that we would see that Christ is all we have because he is our only hope. Therefore, we, we want to do what the poet does here. It's to remind ourselves that it's good to wait on this hope in Christ. So let's, let's dive in right now. Hope perishing. 
Now, I wonder, as, as you heard this, this passage read, did you notice the, the difference between Lamentations 3 and the first two laments? See, in this one, it, it actually intensifies the acrostic nature. Remember, acrostic just means it's following the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza is a letter. But now, each stanza has three couplets. And for each couplet, it begins with the same letter. It's intensifying the problem. It's intensifying the suffering and the pain where it goes A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. It's the same length, but it's noted as 66 verses, letting us know that it's three times the pain, three times the sorrow of the original 22 verses that we see in chapters 1 and chapters 2. It's also, it's this fancy word called chiasm, right? You can just think of it as, as a sandwich where the outer serves to pinpoint the center, right? And the central theme of this passage we'll find later in verse 33. It's actually the central passage of the entire book of Lamentations. It's all funneling down to this one point in verse 33, But the major difference here is that the poet has taken over as the subject. Kevin Oregon, who's who's one of my my sermon prep team members, he he noted that in this first section that the word I, me, or my is used over 30 times. I mean, look right in verse 1 through 3. The poet says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hands, and again and again the whole day long. And as you keep reading all the way through verse 18, it keeps intensifying. You cannot tell if he's talking about himself or if he's talking about Lady Zion. And since Lady Zion has lost her voice, he now speaks on her behalf. He takes on Lady Zion's suffering as his own. He is now Israel personified. In verse 4, I want you to keep your Bibles open with me this morning. In verse 4, he says, I waste away. In verse 5, he says, God has surrounded me with bitterness and trials. He says, it's so dark that I feel like I'm in a grave with the dead in verse 6. Verses 7 through 9, he's saying there's no way out. And if I try to escape, God will hunt me down like a bear. He'll hunt me down like even like a lion to destroy me. Then he goes on to say, I'm the laughing stock of the nation around me. You can basically call my first name shame and my last name embarrassment. And it gets even bleaker and darker. You see in verses 13 through 18, he says, I completely have forgotten what happiness is like. I've lost all hope. And why has he lost all hope? It's because he's put his hope in created things that fail. This is complete vulnerability before the community of Israel and complete vulnerability before God. Now, I'm not aware of of you ladies doing this. I know us us men, we we do this. So I'm just going to ask the gents here. Um, have you guys ever gone to put on a shirt in the morning and notice that it shrunk only to find out that it, it didn't shrink? 
but something else, our, our guts got a, a little bit larger. So, so what, what do we do in those moments? Well, we do what any normal guy would do. We suck our gut in, right? We, we pretend and we make it look like something isn't there that actually is. And this is what we typically do with our performance-driven spiritual lives. We try to make it look like something is not there that actually is. We suck in our spiritual guts. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden who attempted to sow fig leaves to cover up their nakedness and their shame. But the poet refuses to do that. He, he's not sucking in his imperfect spiritual gut to make it look like something isn't there that actually is. He lets it all hang out. He doesn't pretend that he's more holier than he actually is. He doesn't pretend that he's happier than he actually is. He doesn't pretend that he was more obedient than he actually was. And he doesn't pretend that he only put his hope in God alone. No, he lets it all hang over his belt. Why is he able just to let all of his emotions, all of his sadness, all of his grief and pain just hang out for all to see? He tells us why and what he does next. See, his hope is perishing because his hope was in the created. But he also has hope remembering. His hope is in a merciful God. It's the second point, hope remembering. Look at the start of verse 19 in chapter 3, if you still have your Bibles open. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Do you, do you see the turn here? Verse 18, he's literally saying, all my endurance and my hope is burnt up. It's, it's perished. In verse 19, he's saying, I remember my afflictions. I remember my hardships. I mean, is, isn't it easier to remember hardships? Isn't it easier to remember all the things that have gone wrong? It's easier because it doesn't take any effort. They just naturally come to mind in a post-Genesis 3 world where the fall has wreaked havoc even on our memories. I mean, the elders and I were just talking about this at our shepherding meeting last week as we prayed for you by name. It's so easy, is it not, to let the darkness of trials, the darknesses of miscarriages, the darknesses of people moving away and moving on to eclipse the beauty of God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives. But the nature of a, an eclipse is that even though darkness looms, a great shadow is casted. The sun shines brighter still. And this is what the poet is forcing himself to remember. That the sun still shines. He's forcing himself to remember. He says, this I call to mind. Sure, my mind naturally wants to remind me of all this horrendous stuff that has happened in the past because of my sin, because of my misplaced desires. But I am going to call this to mind. This is not autopilot. This is active recall. And what is the poet calling to mind? 
Look in verse 22 through 24 with me. This is why he has hope. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I mean, it seemed as if a moment earlier, the poet had no hope. It seemed as if a moment earlier, all he could remember were his afflictions. And at this point, the poet stops listening to himself and starts preaching to himself. The Lord will not cast me off forever, but he will show me his love forever. That's why I have hope. He stops listening to himself and preaches to himself that when we hear our hearts say, it's hopeless, we must argue back. We must preach back to our hearts. If we have God, we have hope. And look what he does next. In verse 25, every line begins with good. Good is the Lord to those who wait for him. Good is the waiting. Good it is when we sit in silence and wait. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, it's good while you wait? (laughs) It's good. It's good to wait on things. I mean, especially in this scenario, it's good to wait when you're experiencing pain, when you're experiencing exhaustion and sadness and grief. You ever thought to yourself, it's good to wait? Of course not. Because you know what waiting feels like? It feels like we're doing nothing. And that's exactly why it's good. Because when we do nothing, we're reminded that God is always doing something. God is always on the move. See, the poet knows that his trials and afflictions, they don't have the final word over his life. He knows and we know that God works all things out for the good of those who love him. He knows that God will not cast him off forever, but instead love him forever when he returns to him. He knows that anger isn't there to wake him up in the morning. He's there reminding himself that God's mercy is there to wake him up in the morning. And we are told, we are told here, That even when we do experience God's anger, when we do experience affliction, it's not for the reason that we think it is. It's not coming from the place where we might think it's coming from. So here we come to the theological bullseye, not of this just chapter, but of the entire book. Of this entire funeral hymn book, the center of the sandwich, we are told that God does not bring affliction or pain or grief from his heart. Just look at verse 33 with me. For he, that is God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, what could this mean? I've heard Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he, he described this as God's anger is is not his ready disposition towards us. He doesn't lay in ambush like a sniper at night, waiting for us to wake up only to inflict uh, hardships on us. That's not God's ready dis- uh, disposition. Nowhere in Scripture does it say God is anger. 
It does say God is holy, though. And his anger, time and time again, has to be awakened. It has to be provoked. It's not something that organically comes out of God. It comes out as his response to unholiness. We are never told that God is anger. We're told that God is love, that God is kind, that God is merciful, and he's eager to pour out all those things on all who would return to him. His impulse is not to cause pain, but to do good. His impulse is not to humiliate, but instead swallow us up in the hope that he will show mercy when we cry out to him. Jonathan Edwards, theologian from the Great Awakening, says this, He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. See, judgment comes to people who don't return. God's natural disposition is mercy, it's grace, it's love. This is why the poet doesn't suck his gut in. He lets it all hang out because he knows mercy is waiting for him in the morning. Love will last forever. Anger is just a moment. He stops listening to himself and instead starts preaching to himself. Because at this moment, he realizes that God is all he has because he's his only hope. So he must wait on this God. It's good to wait on this God. And that's why he then has hope weeping. Third point, hope weeping. Now, this is what we must not do with this passage. We must not silver line and put a bow tie on this lament. Those words, great is thy faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning, are sung with tears. And from verses 40 to 51, he now invites the whole community, all of the remnant of Israel, to weep together, to weep with him. This is a communal event. He says, let us Let us examine our ways. Let us return to this Lord who promises to be faithful and promises to show mercy. Let us weep over what has happened in the past. Let us weep over our sin, verse 39. Let us weep over the lack of God's forgiveness because of our lack of repentance, verse 42. Let's weep over the real-time consequences of our rebellion, verses 43 to 45. And let's weep over how we've been wrongly mistreated by the nations, and we've been publicly humiliated by them in verses 46 to 48. And in verse 49, he says, and keep weeping. Keep weeping until the Lord sees you and takes notice of you. Eugene Peterson commenting on this passage, he says this, the biblical way to deal with suffering is to transform what is individual into something corporate. No single person's sin produced the sufferings consequent to the Jerusalem's fall, and no single person's ought to mourn them. Response to suffering is a function of the congregation. 
The response to suffering is a response of the whole community. That when others join in the suffering, others join in the hardship, it's communal validation that suffering isn't meaningless. That suffering isn't void of purpose. That suffering isn't void of hope. It means that the community has taken a vote. And the votes are in. Your suffering, it does hurt. Your suffering, it is painful. Your suffering, it's worth weeping over. And it's worth weeping over together, even when it's your own fault. That's what's happening here. They know it's their fault. And they still say it's worth weeping over. Our rebellion is worth weeping over. The consequences of it is worth weeping over. And we sit here with hope, even when we misplaced our hope in the past, because God's merciful. You see, communal lament, communal tears, helps us rehearse the truth that we are not as we should be. But it also helps us rehearse the truth that hope can return. And that hope can return. Because we will be able to point to one another and point to others who have this hope. This hope that will return one day to wipe away every tear in his name is Jesus. Be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, far as the curse is found. And I wonder, are, are we a community? Are we a family in Christ who only gives silver linings to people's pain? Yeah, but, yeah, but you know, have you ever thought of it from this angle? Are we a community where we give freedom to weep, express pain, and that we will weep with them? For when one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts. That's filled with 100% hurt and 100% hope. It can be both. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Those are tear-filled moments of joy. Or are we going to be the people who force people to swallow their emotions for the facade of happiness so that people have to suck in their guts around us? See, there are two tendencies in our culture when we experience people in their pain and the emotional turmoil that comes along with it. We either deify the emotion or we demonize it. We either call it a God, which means it has the permission to motivate and direct every step of our life, or we call it gross and we bury it in the grave. But lamentations in the whole of Scripture tell us that emotions are a gift. Even the emotions of grief, sadness, and sorrow are a gift because they lead to a communal lament that reminds us of our hope. That this isn't the final word. That this isn't the end of our story. But Christ is. See, even though there are tears, we must never confuse tears to equate with despair. We must never confuse tears with lack of hope. 
Just like we shouldn't confuse a happy smile for evidence of joy. Many times, tears are the birth pains of hope. They are the seedbed of hope. This is why the poet moves from weeping to now hope pleading. Fourth point. Poet here is pleading with Lady Zion, with all the remnant of Israel, that he's been here before. He's put his expectations on the same thing that they've put their expectations in. He's put his hope in the same things that they have that do not last. He has faced the same consequences as them. And he almost drowned and died because of it. But then. But then. Verse 55. But then I called on your name, O Lord. And from the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Oh, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You see what the poet is doing? He's sharing his own story. He's sharing his own failures. He's sharing that God has seen him, that God knows him, and that God has redeemed him. If you keep reading from verse 59 and following, and he tells them, do not fear. See, what we need when we weep, when we are in pain, is not somebody who has it all together. We need someone who says we are in this together. I've failed just like you have. I've misplaced my desires just like you have. I've had false expectations for the created things and even for the creator. And yet, the Lord heard my cry when I was at my deepest moments of despair and he redeemed me. That when I failed, he still remained faithful when I returned to him. The poet knows that he and the rest of Israel has placed their hope in other things but God. We learn this from Lamentations 1 and Lamentations 2. You can see this in 2 Kings. They put their hopes in chariots and horses and powers of other nations. And once those nations enslaved them, all their hope were dashed to bits. And the same is true for us. We've been there countless times before where we put false expectations and unnecessary desires on things that always overpromise and underdeliver. So what are you hoping in? What are you expecting to be your functional savior? Maybe it's not political power like the Israelites. Maybe it's a form of comfort. Maybe it's a new job that will provide more meaning to your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's losing that final five pounds. Maybe it's to have kids one day. You're just saying, man, I just wish I had kids that would disobey me. I have none. Maybe it's a vaccine. I mean, when you assess your life, what, what have you come to the conclusion that if you had X, you would then be satisfied? What is it? Because once you identify what that is, you'll notice that you've put things in your life to provide you that thing. 
And when it fails, and it will, what happens next is that you begin to blame God for not giving you those things that he's never promised you. Or you begin blaming that thing for not being the God that you thought it was going to be for you. What Lamentations is inviting us to do is to weep over our misplaced hope. Is to lament. That we have often put expectations in the creation to only do what the creator can do. It's inviting us to see that most of the time those desires are motivated by fear. Fear that the future will be lonely if I don't have this. Fear that the future will be uncomfortable if I don't have this. Fear that the future might be meaningless if I don't have this. And it's telling you right now to put your hope in something that cannot fail, will never fail, will never leave you, and will never forsake you. And it's God, God alone. And this is what the poet does. The poet is reminding Israel that only God can redeem Only God can see all this, know all this, and redeem every aspect of your life. He knows the suffering and the pain. And God will repay those enemies. He will repay them for what they have done to you. And this is what they plead for him to do in the final verses of this lament. They say, you will repay them, O Lord. According to the works of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. You see, they know like God was faithful to judge them for their injustices and their idolatries. If God was faithful to judge them, he will be faithful to judge others. See, in his judgment, there is a seedbed of hope. That if God was faithful to judge, he will also be faithful to forgive and to show mercy. But little does the poet know that God will one day come and deliver them. That God would deliver them from a far worse enemy. From an enemy that wants to seek, devour, and destroy worse than any political power on the earth. And that worse enemy is their sin. And the consequence of sin, death. See, God would one day come in human flesh not to destroy a political enemy, but to be destroyed for them by the real enemy, their sin. See, what the poet is pleading for is still a hope in a political comfort, in a political power. And this is what the Jews would do when Jesus arrives on the scene as the Messiah. They, they, did, they wanted him to come and destroy Rome so that they can have political power, they can have political wealth, they can have political comfort. But Jesus did not come to destroy Rome. He did not come to destroy what was on the outside of us. He came, he came to destroy the enemy that's on the inside of us. He came as the suffering servant. He came as the one who would say like the poet, I've seen much affliction. 
He came knowing that he would be the one underneath God's wrath. He came knowing he would be the one like the poet whose skin is torn from limb to limb. He came as the one who knows that it's good to wait on God. Oh, Jesus waited. He waited 30 years, but he did not wait for peace. He did not wait for comfort. He did not wait for power. No, he waited knowing that he would have discomfort instead of comfort. He would have to give up his power on that cross. He would have to experience pain. You see, Jesus not only came to suffer for us, he came to suffer because of us, and he came to took our suffering on him. Like the poet said, their suffering is my suffering. Jesus comes and says, their sin now gets placed on me. I will take their sin upon me. And Jesus came to die so that we would see that all of our misplaced hopes would lead to death, would lead to loneliness, would lead to separation from God forever. He came. Jesus came sympathizing. We do not have a great high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with us. No, he has come as one who is able to sympathize with us. He has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And Jesus entrusted himself to God. He waited on God, knowing that God's faithfulness and compassion would come through Jesus' suffering. It would come to us through faith alone, that you would not be cast off forever. Even though Jesus was cast off on that day as he hung from the cross, God afflicted him, not from his heart, but he afflicted him so that from his heart, love and mercy can flow down to sinners like me and you. Jesus died in agony, but he did not die in despair. He rose from the grave to secure us a hope in himself that when all other hopes fail, Christ would be our only hope. You see, the resurrection is proof. It's proof that he will not fail us. It's proof to calm our fears that our future is secure. It's proof that God will not abandon us forever, but instead show us his steadfast love forever when our hope and trust is in the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Oh, it's so vital to understand, to believe with all our hearts, to continue to preach to ourselves, and not just listen to ourselves, but preach to ourselves that what is will not always be. Mm-hmm. What is will not always be. The biblical story is not this repeating cycle. No, it has this Beautiful beginning, painful and dark middle, and glorious end. And that glorious end gives us hope for today, that there is a bright light shining in on our darkness right now. And it's in the form of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. This shows us that Christ is all we have because Christ is all we are able to hope in. He is all that we need. Christ's death is the death of all of our failed desires and all of our failed hopes. And Christ's resurrection is the resurrection of a hope that doesn't fail and a hope that will last forever. This guarantees that the pain that you're feeling right now, that feels inescapable, 
the tears that you are weeping that seem to never dry up, you will not have to live with forever. That is our hope, all because of Jesus. Church, let us be a community that calls our minds to remind one another of this hope as we weep, not in spite of our weeping, that even though we might have tears, we have a great hope, for great is God's faithfulness. His anger is not new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is all we have because Christ is our only hope. So let us remind ourselves that it is good to wait on this God who is faithful. Our future tells you that you aren't cursed with lust, but you are gloriously and guaranteed more than you can imagine in the future. What is will not always be. No tears is coming. No sorrow is coming. He will come one day to make his blessings know for as the curse is found. And so we wait. We wait on the goodness of our hope in Christ Jesus. And we wait with tears that are filled with hope. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we have the freedom to lament, that we have the freedom to be honest with you, that we have the freedom to return to you as we examine our